0: I feel a sense of, of responsibility now because of this experience I've got, taking pictures and being able to survive in the Arctic Ocean, I feel a sense of duty now to go back there and photograph the ice and do whatever scientists need before it's not possible any longer, which is a day that's rapidly approaching.
1: Welcome to Terra Incognita, the adventure podcast. Today's episode is a full-length feature with polar photographer Martin Hartley. Now, some people on this podcast don't need much of an introduction, and others do. And that, for me, isn't too much of a problem. We try to feature people that float underneath the radar, as well as those incredible people who've become household names. Now, Martin Hartley tows the line somewhere between the two. Those that know him, or know of him, know just how prolific and influential and inspirational he is and how unique his career has been. For those who don't know Martin, his speciality really is polar photography um, as well as portrait photography, but Martin has spent quite a lot of his time um, sleeping in tents and I guess suffering for his art, to use the cheesy cliche, uh, in some really challenging environments I was introduced to Martin late last year by some mutual friends at Kendall Mountain Festival. I've been a big fan and an admirer of Martin's for years. I mean, my job is taking photographs in hard to reach and dangerous and difficult places. So it's probably understandable that Martin is something of a hero of mine. And in the end, this interview was quite surreal for me. Uh, I visited Martin in Bristol, we sat in his living room, drank tea and talked about the world. This is by no means the cheeriest episode we've recorded, and actually it can be fairly harrowing in places. Over his career, Martin has watched climate change happen, and he's actually documented the sea ice retreating. We talk about this in detail in the episode, so I'll leave it there for now. And before we start, I'm going to talk to you very quickly about Sidetracked and Kendall. I've mentioned Sidetracked numerous times, and the last little dispatch that we released was actually Martin talking about his work as the director of photography at Sidetracked. I've said it all before, but it's an amazing journal. I personally read it cover to cover every time it arrives on my doorstep. And I'm sat literally a meter away from an open copy of Sidetracked Journal 14. So if you do find yourself inspired by these stories and these people, then go and have a peek at sidetrack.com. And then what to say about Kendall? Well, it's all nicely linked because Martin and I, as I've mentioned, met at Kendall Mountain Festival. I've been going for seven or eight years now. And as well as being a hub for the finest films and literature and photography in the outdoor world, it's also an amazing place to hang out with your friends, like-minded people and occasionally meet your heroes. You find yourself standing in the bar drinking alongside the people that you've just been watching on the big screen. It's incredibly exciting that they're taking the whole thing on tour. They're taking inspiring, sensational people on tour around the UK and the main months to check it out are March, April and May. So if you're enjoying what we do at the podcast and you fancy seeing something like that live on stage, then head over to kendallmountaintour.com and book yourself some tickets. Right over to Mr Martin Hartley. Right. Right. I have a feeling this one's going to be one of the most fluid conversations yet because we haven't done any research because i didn't think i needed to but well, we haven't had any beer so that's always a good start we haven't had any beer i've had one coffee and a sip of tea <laughs> and now we're going to talk about you oh dear anyway can you tell me who and what you are
0: bloody hell i thought you might be starting by asking my favorite color Um, What's your favourite colour? I don't know that either, depends on the day. Um, So I'm a photographer who does lots of things um, with his camera, always has done since about the age of five. Um, There was a phase when I wanted to be a vet but there was no chance I was ever going to Get yeah, four A's A level. Um, I became a photographer almost by accident when I came runner up in a wildlife photographer of the year competition, aged 16. Um, and since then, I've been doing a lot of travel and a lot of expeditions, thinking that that's the last one I'm ever going to do. And somehow, since 1993, I've done one or two expeditions a year with my camera as a photographer. And each time I do an expedition, I think it's going to be the last one, but it doesn't seem to ever be the last one. Why do you think it's going to be the last one? Um, Because I think I should get myself a proper job and stay at home more and do normal photography things like babies and children and pets and dogs and stuff like that i've tried doing that but i'm not very good at doing one thing
1: could you not do all the things
0: i I do end up invariably doing all the things i do
1: so let's talk a bit about expedition history then Mm -hmm. so what was the i mean how did you end up going on an expedition i guess
0: okay so i did my first i reckon did my first expedition when i was five years old in my head this sounds way too too romantic to be true but it's not so i was given some i've got a christmas list over there can i just grab that and show you what's you can. in it yeah i found this on my my, oh. my dad passed away five years ago and in clearing out the house i found an old christmas list in 1976 i can't do my sums how old i was then Seven uh, and number five on the list is an adventure git' spelled in two different ways, so I did actually get an adventure kit I'm just showing that the Christmas list there it
1: does say an adventure kit
0: <laughs> so i don 't know why I asked for that. I must have seen an advert or I just thought there was such a thing so um I was seven then, not five. Anyway. In the kit, it given to me at Christmas. Um, there was a plastic, army style water bottle, a pen knife, which had been removed because my parents thought I'd hurt myself. There's a compass that didn't work, and I knew it didn't work because it was never pointing the same way. And I don't know why I knew that. Eight, seven, and what else was in there? Water bottle, compass, pen knife oh and a camera yeah a plastic camera with a roll of film and it had 12 exposures at the back of the house was a big field with long grass and I went with all this stuff into the long grass and pretended I was exploring I actually had that as a thought in my head age seven I don't know why I thought that I think maybe because of a penguin Book about Captain Scott, I don't know. Um, and then, age 13, I organised my first expedition with two friends, we were up a tree at the time, <laughs> thinking how we're going to spend our summer holidays. And it was myself and two mates who were identical twins. And I'd just done a swimming competition for the British Art Foundation, and I said if we're going to go for a walk, we have to do a sponsored walk and we have to raise some money for the British Heart Foundation. And that raising cash was literally going knocking on doors and asking people to pay us pence per mile. It was literally 1p or 2p per mile or 10p. Some people gave us 50p and some very wealthy people gave us a pound if we completed the whole 550 miles. So we went away, me and my two friends, left the back door of my house, walked up the Penham Way and then turned left towards the west coast of the Lake District, and then we did the coast-to-coast, sort of across the east, and then we came back along the Ebor Way, and then rejoined the Pan Way, and then we walked back five weeks later in through my front door. Ace 13, I don't think, this is before the word internet had ever been heard of, even before the word computer had been. I didn't know what a computer was. Certainly no email, certainly no mobile phones then. And if we wanted to call home, we had to put two P coins into phone boxes if we could find one that worked. So I think that's probably, if you were to do that nowadays, a 13-year-old, that would be classed as child abuse or something pathetic like that. Anyway, I think that's probably where I got really comfortable at a very early age being far away from parents and a tap, chairs, that sort of safety stuff. And and my parents, actually halfway through that walk, my parents and my brother and my sister went away to Switzerland on a family holiday. So I came back to an empty house, which seemed okay to me at the time. And oddly enough, I remember going to bed on the first night after that camping trip thinking, I hope a burglar doesn't come into the house. That was my biggest fear. So that was my first expedition age, expedition if I can call it that, age 13.
1: It sounds a lot like an expedition. (laughs) (laughs) So what does that... I mean, it's hard for me to just, like... to deal with that in my head because of what I was doing age 13. You know, going skateboarding on the road outside my house. But what does that do to your head? Or was it just a state of mind that existed already? It was just, this is what I do. I mean, what inspired you, you know, age 13 to just go and do that?
0: Well, the year before, I'd walked the Pennine Way with my brother... Uh, age twelve, <laughs> and because he's my big brother, even though he was a year older than me, that felt safe, I suppose. And I don't know. It's, it, it just felt normal to do that. I didn't feel, I didn't feel stretched in any way, shape, or form, being away from mum and dad and
1: cupboards full of food. What did mum and dad say when you decided you were going?
0: Nothing. Just off you go. <laughs> I don't think you need any help. Or I think I might have bought my dad's rucksack and my dad's waterproof jacket, or my grandfather's waterproof jacket, because I didn't have one of my own.
1: You planned it on your own.
0: Mm.
1: Navigated it on your own.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep.
1: That's unbelievable.
0: Most of it was out of a book. You know, actually, Wainwright had a lot to do with it because Wainwright did. The, we did the Wainwrights Coast to Coast. beautiful drawings and descriptions of go over this style and turn left and you'll see a little stream and cross over the stream near the Rowan tree and go up the hill that kind of stuff so even I was navigating all the instructions are written down in a really beautiful way so I think we bought his Pennine Way book the coast-to-coast book the we did the Ebor Way which was written by some the time for like some dickhead who didn't know where he was going because we got lost a lot on that. <laughs> um, and the, years later, I went up Mont Blanc with my brother, based upon a description in a route book, a climbing guide. Never done any alpine mountaining whatsoever, just went up Mont Blanc, and definitely ignorance was bliss. Because if I was going go to go up Mont Blanc now, with the weather I went up with my brother, we would have just gone back down, but it just felt like a big snowy hill to us. <laughs> just because the route description was so if you look at guidebooks, their descriptions are pretty tame I mean they don't say don't go here because you're going to die, they say oh this is probably interesting route finding never says don't get lost because if you go the wrong way here, you're going to be in trouble, it just says interesting route finding that kind of language
1: It's really interesting the way you talk about it because I think about the word exploration a lot and I'm, I have fairly strong opinions about explorers and what makes someone an explorer but listening to you talk about it you are exploring I mean maybe you're not the first person to go and walk the Pennine Way but you don't have you know what people have these days is access to absolutely everything they can possibly need give or take you know Google Earth 7,000 people who've done it before and written blogs about it somebody who's Instagramming it live as they go you know it's impossible When we interviewed George Mombio. he talked about how when he went to Papua New Guinea, he didn't have any form of communication. It wasn't physically possible. Whereas now it's physically impossible not to. Mm. You know, it's fake. To go and walk the Pennine Way now with any sort of mystery is... It's not possible.
0: No, that's true. I didn't think about that. Yeah, I suppose every step of the way was unknown, apart from a page in the guidebook that said go through this set of trees and then start going up the hill. But exploring nowadays um, its a marketing term. There's no such thing as an explorer nowadays. I mean, I can tick every single box. I've climbed and climbed summits and I've brought back information and shared it, which is the definition of exploration. The word explore now is on, it's lost all its meaning to me i'm pretty old-fashioned all this rubbish about exploring human boundaries that's sort of impressive but if it's on an olympic platform i think you can measure it there and it has more value if it's being measured and everyone's doing the same thing just to go faster further longer is that exploration no i think those a feats of endurance i don't think it's exploring i don't think it's contributing to society which is what exploration is So, yeah, I'm a best of an old fart in that respect. Um, And everyone seems to be labelled a polar explorer nowadays. When you can go to the South Pole without any previous experience of any polar region, you can just set off, hit go and you're sat nav and off you go. That's not exploration, that's a camping holiday.
1: You know, I move more in the mountain world than the polar world and nobody's ever called a mountain explorer, even people doing first ascents. You know, even Everest, well, maybe Everest summiteers are called explorers by the media, but somebody doing a first ascent in the Garhwal Himalaya using only Google Earth satellite imagery as a map, I would argue, sounds like you would disagree, but I think that's exploration.
0: Mm, I almost used the word exploration in terms of mountains, but I've, that is something I've thought of as well, that first ascents when they leave the uk to go and climb a mountain mountaineers don't generally tend to shout about it like pole explorers do they just tend to on the whole go off and do it and then shout about it when they come back
1: why do you think like that is
0: well first of all why are they not explorers why uh, mountaineers call themselves mountaineers they don't call themselves explorers the media calls them mountaineers anyone going on a camping holiday to north or south pole gets called by the media if they choose to engage the media an explorer, because the media don't know the difference, or um, maybe the word polar traveler isn't romantic or extreme enough to get any attention. Yeah. Mountaineer, people can imagine what a mountaineer is, or a climber, they go from climbing routes, climbing mountains, they go and discover new mountain ranges and sometimes come back silently they might have a paragraph in a climbing magazine or something and they'll be happy with that but I don't know it's very mean, you can a North Pole expedition to me to me stop me if I start ranting is leaving from the coast or as near to the coast as you can safely go and then go all the way to North Pole and that's a North Pole expedition. A North Pole expedition is not getting dropped off 60 miles away and skiing to North Pole, that's a last degree expedition. But there's no separation in the media whether you ski the last three miles to North Pole or the last 60, or even you can just fly there.
1: Yeah, I mean, what you're talking about there is the media's interpretation of what people do in those environments. I think that that is something we can all legitimately whinge about fairly regularly you know, justifiably, but the term expedition is another interesting one. I mean, this this isn't a conversation about the dictionary, but science is such a fascinating medium when it comes to expeditions because a scientific North Pole expedition could be lots of scientists get flown in, in a very posh aeroplane to the North Pole and hang out and do their thing. That's definitely an expedition, you know, they're living in a an unsafe, unstable environment, but they're thriving. I mean, that's just because we've spent 100 years doing it and we know what we're doing now. I think there's a huge difference, and that's part of what I was hoping this conversation would be, is talking about authentic polar expeditions. <clears throat> adventure, polar adventure. Mm. Polar <laughs> explorers. It's... Hmm.
0: You can't help what the media say about you generally, even if you give them a document that's written and typed out with facts on. Somehow, almost without exception, those facts either get forgotten or they're not interesting enough so they'll print something that's more interesting or more fun or… I mean, Antarctica has been lost in the fog of overstatement, and that's partly due to media and partly due to individuals who set off there on their camping holidays
1: so what has impressed you recently then the last let's say five years or ten years or or you know throughout your career what have been the moments where you've sat down and thought oh my god that is exactly what it's all about
0: i thought van fines and mike stroud's trans-antarctic crossing was very impressive um I know they didn't cross the whole continent, but they spent quite a long time out there on their own, navigating using very basic navigation tools. And I don't think anyone had gone that far pulling their own stuff before. That was quite committed. Um, That wasn't quite committed, that was a very committed adventure. And um, before that, his trans globe expedition even though we was on a big ship for part of it and using motorized vehicles, that the planning of that and the execution of that was just massive. Massive expedition in different parts. And the Trans Antarctic expedition with Jeff Summers and uh, the International Trans Antarctic Expedition, what? I forgot the year. That crossed Antarctica by its longest axis took eighteen months. Eighteen months. Eighteen months. That's an expedition. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They had resupplies, and they had by plane fuel drops, um, not food drops, food drops and equipment resupplies, being away for eighteen months.
1: So, for those that don't know, what what was that then? What was the eighteen months? What were they doing?
0: They started off at the northern tip of the Antarctic Peninsula with a team of with, a, with dog teams and they traversed the whole of the peninsula all the way to the South Pole and then crossed the South Pole all the way across to the other edge, the very edge of the continent, which took 18 months. And if you're going to compare like for like, which you can't with North and South Poles because it's like red wine and white wine, uh, but Wally Herbert's crossing of the Arctic in 1969. He set off from land in Point Barrow, went to the Pole of inaccessibility, which is the furthest point away from land, and then onto to the North Pole, and then carried on across from the North Pole, across to Svalbard, Langebien, uh, not Langebien, um, Switzerland. That took him 18 months as well. Living on the Arctic Ocean for 18 months, overwintering in the Arctic Ocean, that's an expedition. Not saying anything less than that isn't an expedition. That, those are the two biggest polar expeditions that will probably never be... Well, you can't repeat Wally Herbert's trip because half of it's water, probably more than half of it. And the Antarctic crossing with from the peninsula, you would... I don't think that will ever be repeated. It's just 18 months away. I wouldn't want to do 18 months away, thank you. No, thanks.
1: It's interesting, the the way that styles are changing obviously like antarctica is there's lots of people doing things by kite it's about this it's a lot more like mountaineering i guess these days and correct me if i'm wrong you know you're the expert and i am not but it's about the ethics and the method so unsupported unassisted etc etc whereas the north seems to be centered a lot more around can we actually physically do it regardless of how we do it
0: the most impressive thing in modern ex- polar expedition times is Leo holding spectre expedition. Combined different skill sets, different kinds of equipment, you need to have good navigational skills, exceptional navigational skills, logistical skills and you need to be disciplined in climbing and polar travel and kiting. That's a lot of stuff to learn. <laughs> and to do well. The difference between Antarctica and Antarctic, modern day, and if you, no matter where you are in Antarctica, more or less, if you fall over and bang your head, you don't have to move, and somebody will come and get you, either in a plane, or on a tracked vehicle, or on a, in a car, or in a skidoo. Somebody can come and pick you up. You don't even have to move, and someone will see from your transmitter that you're not moving, and you should have moved, even if you're on your own, somebody will come and get you you don't even have to make a phone call they'll just know in the the arctic ocean it's different because if i fall down and bang my head then if a plane can't come get me because in order to bring a plane in you need good weather and a good piece of ice for the plane to land on those things don't normally collide you have to go and look for somewhere unless you fall down on a perfectly massive pan of ice which you probably wouldn't do Although I know some people who probably would. Um, (laughs) So you need good weather and a good piece of ice to bring a plane in. You can't get a ship in there, you can't get a tractor vehicle in there, you can't get a car in there or a skidoo. In that respect, you're you're out of the reach of a rescue. There's always a rescue that's possible at some point, but it's more difficult psychologically to be, dropped off the plane goes then you know you're on your own to a large degree
1: we've talked quite a lot about other people's polar journeys and stuff that impresses you and inspires you etc or doesn't but um what is your polar history what have you done
0: mm. um I what was it 2001 I I just said yes, someone said, do you want to come to South Georgia with me? Uh, We're going to get a James Care replica, we're going to sail it from um, Elephant Island to South Georgia, and then we're going to do a crossing. I don't have any sailing experience whatsoever. I get trabecetic. I said, yes, I'd love to do that. (laughs) Um, And recreate Shackleton's journey, that was in 2001. I'd literally I'd come off a river in India up a frozen river, I skied it few miles up a frozen river in India, got back to London, got my film processed, did my laundry, and set off the next day. <laughs> um, my dad came down from Manchester to pick me up to make sure I got the plane. He was being very dad-like. Um, so on the way to the airport. I took my camera cases into the pub, had a quick pint with my dad, and I set off to the airport. And after about five minutes, something wasn't quite right, and I realised I'd left my two camera cases in the pub, which my dad made no no shame in exposing how dis- how much he was despairing of me. <laughs> anyway, the cameras were still there, thankfully, still by the bar where we left after- them. Anyway, so I flew to Antarctica. And then, unfortunately, the ship, the James Carder replica, had, (laughs) um, it was being towed to Portsmouth, and the mast hit a tree, and it nearly came out of the deck. Because the mast wasn't folded down, and it was a careless incident, which thankfully probably saved everyone's lives on the expedition, because we couldn't sail it from Elephant Island to South Georgia. We took it on an icebreaker, and it stayed in the icebreaker, which is a couple of little sails around elephant island but that that incident probably saved everyone's lives because we weren't competent crew i think we were probably incompetent crew except for trevor Potts. and i did the crossing lasted five days five long hard days in almost a total whiteout which was an insane amount of fun for some reason i don't know why we couldn't see any of south georgia until the last day um And I felt good. We had a satellite telephone. We didn't have any means of getting any pictures out or any blogs out or anything. Didn't really care about any of that. We were just there. The satellite telephone was there for safety, not for communicating how great we are or how ill we were or how slow we were. Um, um, And there's no chance of whinging that the food was eight years out of date. stuck with that anyway that was just a mini epic epic little five days that's my first polar trip and then that was 2001 and then 2002 oh i broke my neck that year as well um it's probably from my chin downwards i had a massive operation to get my arms and legs moving again which worked thankfully
1: that doesn't seem like the sort of thing we should gloss over <laughs>
0: Oh, it's very, un- very unromantic. I was photographing the end of an adventure race for um, a children's charity and banged my head running up a staircase. Hit my head on this newel post, back of staircase, so hard, I heard the wine glasses in the bar rattle. And there was someone at the bottom of the stairs and said, Martin, you are all right? And I said, actually, no, I'm not. And then my arms fell to my sides and I just came, nothing worked beneath my chin. So I've had three parts of my spine sewn off at the back because the spinal cord was under so much pressure, it couldn't go anywhere. So that pressure was released and then things started working again, thankfully. That was in November and I'd already committed to doing a crossing of Baffinal with a friend of mine. And I could only walk for 20 minutes before my legs started violently shaking. And I said to him two weeks before we were due to leave, I, said, I can't come because I can't walk for more than 20 minutes. He said, oh, don't worry, don't worry, just come, and if you're going to do one day, we'll get a helicopter and take you out. So that sounded nice. And I was severely depressed then, because I hadn't moved or done anything for six months, apart from sleep and eat and sleep and eat, didn't really do an exercise. And somehow, Mark Davies called, he runs a charity called ETH Venture Trust. Somehow, I don't know how he did it, he managed to persuade me to say yes, and I got on the plane to go to Baffin Island and then something, I can only call it magic, happened. When we got out of the aircraft in Pangnitong on the west coast of Baffin, everything changed. We started skiing and then everything started working as normal. And we crossed the, nearly crossed the whole of Baffin Island after eight or 10 days, I think, skiing. that was another epic, epic time, because we didn't know where we were going, didn't have any polar experience, had very cold weather, we're eating food out of dog bowls because someone said, you should eat out of dog bowls because you can't knock them over in the tent. I won't say where we got the information from, but some famous polar renowned explorer in big chunky fat inverted commas said, oh, you can ski the route in a day, it's 150 miles. All right, then two days, he said. Less said about that, the better. Anyway, that was another adventure. Didn't know what we were doing. Didn't know where we were going. Um, we didn't have a satellite telephone because there's two or three huts in the middle of the island and at the ends where you can use a radio if you get stuck. So that felt quite exposed. And there was no helico- helicopters to get us out if I did get into trouble. But I didn't need it. I've never... F- I just everything, just like a switch going on. In my body, everything worked again. I don't know why that was. Psychologically and physically, everything just started working as normal. It's incredible. Yeah, that's odd. So that was in two thousand two, I think. So I'll just keep talking about this. Yes. And then two thousand and two, uh in nineteen ninety nine I went to the Eastern Premier's to climb some unclimbed mountains with Paul Deegan in memory of Anatoly Bukaree, who Paul met on Everest. On one of his service trips and Anatole said you must come to this part of Kyrgyzstan where it's from. There's some five or six unclimbed five or six thousand metre peaks. You must come climb them. I can get a permit. So he died on Anapona on Christmas Eve on July Booker Eve. So Paul said we're gonna do the expedition I'll get a permit and we'll go and climb these mountains. We had a great time in the in Kyrgyzstan an amazing expedition um I'm just re- rewinding a little bit because paul was going to give a talk at the in and out club in london and he couldn't do it so i did it reluctantly scared shitless did a talk actually it wasn't really a talk i just played lots of music and lots of slides did very little speaking and at the end of it this bloke comes up to me and says "Marvelous lecture love the music um would you come and would you like to come up north with me one day and i don't know what to say uh i've got a girlfriend and i'm actually from up north i wasn't quite sure what he meant <laughs> and he had you know big wavy hair and perfectly crisp ironed white shirt with big collars. i thought hmm not sure about you anyway eventually in the conversation it transpired that he was Haddo, and by up north he meant going up to the arctic um that was because he was planning a North Pole solo from land to the North Pole, unsupported, without any outside assistance. And he wanted someone to document his preparations for the Times newspaper. So I said, Yes, of course, I'd love to. And he referred to Baffin as Befalmer. <laughs> which I thought was quite funny, because it's warmer than the Arctic. That was his little joke. Um, so, I'll tell you this little story. You might have to, I can see you're going to have to edit some of this stuff down. So, I arrived from Resolute Bay again, having said yes to something I didn't really know. I thought the high Arctic was just like the European Alps. So, I took all my winter climbing stuff and arrived at this place called Resolute Bay and bumped into a guy called David Hempelman Adams up there, who I'd met previously. I said, I said, what are you doing here? He said, I'm just going on a skiing holiday. So he was going to ski to the magnetic pole, unsupported, so good luck, waved him goodbye. Um, Anyway, I met this this guy called Gary Guy, who can only be described as the John Wayne of the Arctic. absolutely loved him. He used to get a container ship sent up to Resolute Bay in the summer, full of beer, nothing else, because it's a dry it's a dry community. That beer was for his personal consumption. Water hero. He worked for elect electricity company up there, power company. Anyway, he was a polar guide as well. He's helped lots of polar trips. Uh, so I arrived, got the airplane. He said, right, Martin, we're going to go and meet Penn. He's on the ice. That's his position. Uh, we're going to go out and he's about 35 miles offshore, we're going to go meet him and a chap called Simon Murray, who he, Penn was training for a South Pole expedition he was going to do later that, you know, in the next, the next months after his North Pole trip. So I said, have you ever seen a, have you ever ridden a skidoo before? I said no. So he took me outside, he said right, that makes it go forwards and that makes it stop. That's all you need to know okay so i said show me what clothes you got so proudly dumped all my winter alpine clothing onto the floor and he said that's not going to help you at all i'll go and get you something that's going to keep you alive." <laughs> so he went away and came back with these massive massive cellar pets and a massive parker and massive mitts and massive boots Said, so put that on put all the other clothes on as well put that on over the top and then we'll go and find pen and simon so I've ridden motorbikes, so I just thought I'll just pretend I'm on a motorbike now, which is more or less the same as getting on a motorbike. So it wasn't such a drama for me. Set off in a whiteout; um, it was bloody freezing. And after 20 minutes, he stops and gets off, and starts walking around, holding his GPS, and looking at it. I said, "I don't understand. It's not working. It's not working." We're surrounded by white at this stage on the sea ice. Oh, let's just keep going. I know where they are. It's total whiteout, and we're going over all sorts of lumps and bumps on the sea ice. Keep going, going, going. And then my drive belt snaps on my skidoo. (laughs) He's gone off into the whiteout. And Reslet Bay, it's quite known that there's polar bears all around Resolute Bay, because they've got a rubbish dump there, and the bears are always on the rubbish dump. And I, I stop and look around, there's polar bear footprints literally everywhere, as if there's nothing but polar bears around so I thought oh fuck so I stood on my on this seat of my skidoo because I just thought right I'll be okay up here standing on the seat of my skidoo oh my god and then about 20 minutes later thinking right I'm lost for dead now because no one knows I'm here he hadn't found anyone I didn't have any communication and 20 minutes felt like a long time eventually and he realised I wasn't behind him and came back to get me, put a spare drive belt on and the sun was going down the weather cleared a bit and the sun was going down It's still windy and by sheer fluke not through any skills of navigation we found them Um, and I had six cameras on me at the time none of them worked I had little ones and big ones and medium sized ones, and none of them worked when we arrived. So I just put, actually that camera there, that Mamiya 645 down my jacket and ran around for 20 minutes and I took 6 frames of the, the guys and then it stopped working and it was bloody freezing. So, um, and guys said so there's a massive storm coming in, we should really all just pack up the tent and just go back, the training's over, let's just go back to Resolute Bay. So back to the tent, we set off uh, with Gary and Simon on one skidoo and Penn and I on another skidoo, Penn was driving, we set off um, and immediately lost each other and it had already gone dark so we had the skidoo light and nothing else and I'm sure Penn won't mind me saying this because it, well, it is true. So after about 20 minutes Penn stopped the skidoo and he said I'm lost, I don't know where we are. And our faces were just, I don't know, they were just tight with cold. Um, couldn't open my eyes, had to open my eyes with my fingers because everything seemed, felt like it was stuck. Everything was welded to my face. Because honestly, going into the wind, it just feels very, very cold. And I said, let's just, let's just keep going. So we we're towing a sledge behind us and stupidly, we thought it would be faster if we just cut the sledge off because it kept rolling over to keep stopping and rolling it back onto its runners. And, and we kept falling off the skidoo as well because we kept hitting bumps because we're in the you know near near whiteout. So it was getting quite painful coming off the skidoo every 15 minutes. And then we stopped by we'd hit land. And we stopped and pen got off and i got off and pen said, up you know i don't know where to go left or right and i just started crying because i was thinking fucking hell if we get lost here there's no rescue service no one knows where we are no one's going to come out if we survive till the morning i'll have my arms amputated probably near the elbow and probably my feet just beneath my knees if we survive because it's freezing like nothing else had ever experienced and I said, "Well, I uh, mm. said so the sun went down over there, and I remember it. It was on my left shoulder when we came out. So I think we should go that way." And I said, "Yeah, okay, let's go that way." So after about half an hour, just skidooing in the dark, thinking if we run out of petrol, you know, going left or right on this island, we could have missed Resolute Bay and been going around the whole island of Cornwallis Island could have missed a town, it's not really a town, so we're just literally on this skidoo skiing along blindly hoping that we'd made the right call. And we stopped a couple of times to run around and warm up and then eventually, anyway, long story short, we got back to Resolute Bay. And I said to myself, because the first thing that popped into my head was, I'm thinking, oh fuck, if we'd get caught out here, I was looking at my mittened hands, looking at them, thinking, if I lose these, I'll never be able to feel a woman's breast again. That's what I <laughs> <the> thought came <laughs> into my head. No one's gonna want me touching them with stumps. I don't know why I thought that, but I did. Anyway, so I was saying to myself, I was thinking, I'm never coming back here again. I'm never, ever coming back here, ever. This is just stupid. It's cold, I don't like it. You can't see anything. I hate it, not come back here. You're back into the building and of course when you hit a building in the arctic or wherever you're cold, into the warmth everything's okay and then your memory just deletes everything for you i'm sure it's the same reason why women give birth more than once because the brain just not write that was painful it's horrible let's just delete all that because you're going to do it again at some point so the next day it gone, we spent all day faffing inside the building, and Gary, Guy, came back and said, right, we need to go and pick up the sledges that we left, does anyone want to come? So, put my hand up, yeah, I'll come, I'll come with you. And it was just so exciting being out on the sea ice on a clear night, with where you can see stuff, it was incredible, and I just felt so happy and privileged to be out there. With Gary, just me and him on this What Did Dave Brochure come with us? Oh, Ian. Can't remember who was there. Anyway, it just felt so exciting, being outside, under the power of a headlight of a skidoo on the Arctic, the, not the Arctic Ocean, but on the sea ice. It was just amazing. And then that was 2002, and then 2004, Patrick Woodhead and Robin Garrett and uh, Alistair asked me um asked me if I'd go and photograph their expedition Bear Trans Antarctic Expedition. And my role was gonna be a photographer with a team of Land Rovers driving to the South Pole with a resupply, they were gonna get dropped off at the Ross Ice Shelf and Ski and kite ski to the South Pole. We'd meet the South Pole Land Rovers and then we'd be their support vehicle on the way back from the South Pole back to Patriot Hills or Hercules, I can't remember. Sound like a great little adventure driving Land Rovers across Antarctica. Epic fail. <laughs> 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 I had a great time digging out Land Rovers. Didn't do more than five kilometres away from the camp if that. Meanwhile, Patrick and Alison Wienickel, David Rothschild and Paul Landry were happily skiing, kite skiing, um, up the Axel Heiberg Glacier onto the South Pole and then across to Hercules Inlet. They had a successful crossing, meanwhile, we just I spent six weeks digging out Land Rovers from not very deep snow.
1: So that was 2004. That doesn't sound like the best expedition you've ever been on.
0: No, it wasn't the best, but it was a lot of... It felt exciting, potentially driving Land Rover to the South Pole. That would have been amazing. It didn't turn out that way. It was a huge fail, but it was a really enjoyable failure. I was in Antarctica, drinking tea in a nice little tent, eating nice food, not going anywhere. It was okay, being stuck in Antarctica, not doing anything. Why? because it's Antarctica you know it's just a great place to hang out in the feeling of being in Antarctica is a very special thing you can't get it anywhere else you just you feel like an explorer even though you're not even though there's other people around you just get a feeling in Antarctica which only Antarctica can give you
1: would it be unfair to say that you we are one is hunting for the adventures that they had you know turn of the century and just after
0: yeah definitely you want to have that feeling of being an explorer you want to feel like the first person to be there you want to feel like you're out on a limb yeah. antarctica gives you that feeling whether you're an explorer or not it gives you that feeling of it's easy to imagine you're an explorer when you're in antarctica
1: Quite a nostalgic continent mm. isn't it
0: yeah it is yeah and it's easy to imagine being in a tent with Captain Scott and his men, and or Chackleton or not so much Amundsen, but
1: I've never been to the mainland. I've been to the peninsula, but I've not been to the interior. Interior. So what was next then? Ah, uh, so we've gone we've gone two thousand one to two thousand
0: four. Right, two thousand four. Uh, oh, so yeah. So I met David de Rothschild. And he came off that expedition and said, like um, let's think of something to do. So I said, why don't we recreate Wally Herbert's trip, but well, not his trip, because it's too big. Let's do a little boy's version of that. Let's go across the Arctic from Russia to North Pole to Canada with dogs. So that's what he pulled together. And he used the expedition as a vehicle to educate young children about the Arctic, which was great. Because it had a real sense of purpose doing that. And I think that's probably when I discovered this feeling of doing something with a sense of purpose. It's purpose. It's a much bigger driver than anything else. That was the start of joining expeditions that have real meaning. I missed the first part of that expedition because I got frostbite in my toes and baffling on a training trip, which is quite painful. So I was very sad I couldn't be there at the start of the expedition. So I missed the first couple of weeks of that because they set off from Siberia. I flew home, had a bit of a cry because I wasn't at the start of the trip. And then I got helicoptered in. I flew to the North Pole and then got in a helicopter to 88 degrees I think, or 87 or 86 on the Siberian side, I can't remember. Anyway, I joined the expedition after it set off which was just incredible and it is the best way to see the arctic ocean is on a pair of skis with a little rucksack my job was just to be a little yorkshire terrier going from the front of the team to the back front to the back with a camera not pulling anything heavy not driving the dogs just being a photographer it was fucking brilliant it's difficult politically because the team wasn't um as close-knit as it could be could have been to that was difficult on some days. Some days it was impossible, and some days I just wanted to go home. But, and we didn't quite finish getting to the Canadian coast. And I was happy to come home.
1: I'd had enough. If I'm allowed to ask, how come we didn't finish?
0: Because we were averaging one mile an hour with the dogs. And without the dogs we couldn't gain any more speed across the surface than one mile an hour because the conditions were very poor and it was the 13th of june when we got pulled out so now it's quite late lots of water spent too much time going east and west and not enough time going south so we just didn't we just couldn't move any quicker but being with the dogs was just amazing and Obviously Sarah Meryl has gone on to do amazing stuff after that. And her dad, Paul. I bumped into him actually the first time. I uh, didn't see him 14, about 12 years. I bumped into him at the airport in Ponte Arenas a couple of years ago. Yeah, really? Yeah.
1: He's a, very, he's a brilliant character. I, um, I was learning to snow kite in Norway with Carl Alvey and then um, <coughs> ordered a coffee at the bar at Hergestel. and this very sort of quiet, calm man made me a coffee and handed it to me and I sat down with Carl and he went, That's Paul Landry. Ah. I was like, what? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: And David is just indestructible. Have you met David? No. He's he's a he's just he's got so much energy. He's he's a good energy to be around. Um, anyway, so back to... Where were we? we? So that was 2005, I think. Um, oh, I forgot. I, t- I recreated... I recreated... Retraced. In 2002. I left Penn in 2002. He set off on his North Pole trip. I hung around Yellowknife knife and then went to Yorhaven on an expedition that was being filmed by the BBC. Um that was to retrace Franklin's men's journey from where Terror and Erebus were last known position, skied the route the men would have taken around the edge of King William Island down to Starvation Cove, where all along that route, 260 men or something died. Jesus. That was interesting. Doing that I mean, there's nothing to see didn't see anything it's all flat no particular sea ice features it's quite boring but in your head you're thinking i don't know how they managed to survive for so long they lived for two years i think it was stuck in the ice before they decided to leave the ships and try and head to land i think that was a bit after... anyway i can not believe they lasted so long wearing leather clothes and woolly jumpers and
1: Eating seals.
0: Eating seals or whatever, each other, seagulls, seals. Unbelievable. That people can survive in such an environment.
1: And so it, obviously it's mostly polar work that you've done. <coughs> you know, you've done other bits and bobs as well, but it's the stuff you talk about, it's the stuff you're known for in inverted commas. We've talked a little bit about with the draw of Antarctica but what is it you know you speak really passionately about the poles what is it that you keep going back for?
0: I'm actually more interested in the Arctic than I am Antarctica Antarctica is a bit of a playground in some respects at least in my head for, my, for me and my own experiences and I know there's some epic stuff people are doing out there but if I was given a choice to go north or south I'd go north every single time because well I went there in 2009, and 2010, and 2011, and 2012, and 2014, and 2017, and if I could go back every year I would, and I don't know why, well I'd, actually I do know why that's a big fat juicy lie, I do know why, and it's not for fun. When I first went with, the, with Penn, I saw the edge of the Arctic Ocean for the first time when he set off from Ward Hunt and that's 2002, and the feeling that you get looking out of the Arctic Ocean it does look like a big nasty monster which Antarctica doesn't, Antarctica looks quite friendly and nice because you go down to Antarctica and you go down there in the summer you go to the Arctic at the end of the winter and it is a beast, it's a massive, unpredictable beast the surface is unpredictable every hour of an arctic ocean expedition is different you cannot really predict what you're going to come across in the next hundred meters even so that's where the excitement comes from and my first visits to the arctic ocean were about adventure and having that feeling of being an explorer but not really but just having this really profound sense of adventure um, but more and more and more there's been this momentum gathering inside me which is when I went back with Penn and Ann Daniels on the Arctic Ocean in 2009 and 2010, we were collecting data for the scientists, uh, measuring things of the ice, measuring the CO2 content of the water and of the air and all sorts of other funky stuff we were doing. That really gets you out of the tent in the morning knowing that you're collecting data for somebody who sits in a lab somewhere who's trying to solve all sorts of questions. That's an amazing driving force. And um, Knowing now how valuable the Arctic Ocean is to everyone on the planet, it's not, just a, it's not just a place for adventure, it's a really important part of the global furniture which protects us from all sorts of horrors of global weather change. And not only that, when you're there, Like I said earlier you have this feeling that you're completely isolated and that experience is really hard to get anywhere in terms of being if something bad happens so I got really really good example is I was very clumsy in 2009 I got my frostbite injury came back on day three because got a bit scared, I put an extra pair of socks on, didn't eat enough, didn't drink enough, got very cold feet, and bang, day three, my toes look like aubergines, three of them. So there was a bit of a scampering around, thinking, right, we need to get out of here, I, I need to get out, or get a plane in, get some medical attention. The weather's bad for the next seven days, by which time, I thought, well, whatever's gonna to happen to my toes is gonna to happen whether I go home or not, so I might as well stay so and it was okay i thought i'm gonna stay here finish the expedition because it's an amazing expedition really important will i lose three toes for this and the answer was yes as it happened i didn't lose three toes they went black and thanks to Doc martin who sort of did a remote medical advice i'd send back a couple of pictures of my toes and he'd tell me what to do and Anne was very good at being a nurse, I have to say. But it was fucking painful. So I had one day on the painkillers and one day off because with the painkillers, my fingers got cold. So I couldn't take pictures. So I had to alternate between painful toes or painful fingers (laughs) so I could take pictures. So that's how I did it. And thanks to Dr. Martin and Anne, I kept my toes. They did go black and they did go horrible, but they're sort of, resemble to us now so answer your question sorry I'm waffling now Um, I feel a sense of of responsibility now because of this experience I've got taking pictures and being able to survive in the Arctic Ocean I feel a sense of duty now to go back there and photograph the ice and do whatever scientists need before it's not possible any longer which is a day that's rapidly approaching
1: what's interesting or what's interesting to me again if this is unfair then tell me but it sounds like what you're interested in doing you know going back to photograph the ice unless i'm mistaken it's not a creative adventure it's not a creative sorry it's not a creative venture the purpose is to go and record data for science Now, the fact that you're recording data using a camera is not necessarily relevant, but it sounds like, you know, you're a lot more than a photographer these days.
0: So my next expedition, if I can talk about that, it's up to you. (laughs) Is specifically to go and photograph the last pieces of multi-year ice. Multi-year sea ice is epic stuff, and there's not there's hardly any of it left up there. Multi-year sea ice is ice that is older than two years. Most of the ice on the Arctic Ocean now, 98% of it is first or second year ice. And the rest is water. And the other bit, which is 0.5% of the ice that's up there is multi-year sea ice, which is beautiful, massive, thick, four meters thick. Lumps of ice that piled on top of each other. Just these amazing cathedrals of ice. I've only ever, I reckon I've only ever seen that kind of ice once in 2,000 miles of travelling across the surface of the Arctic Ocean.
1: You have
0: a picture? I do, yeah, I do. See that thing behind you there? Shall I grab it? Yeah. that is um, multi-year sea ice, that's what first year ice looks like, you see the difference? Yeah. So when you come across that kind of ice, getting across that, you might, you might do 500 meters in eight hours. That's just, I'm only saying that to illustrate how difficult it is to get across and around and through. It is beautiful incredible the most charismatic ice i've ever seen and i've seen some big icebergs and been to Antarctica that stuff is (laughs) let's think of it as visual crack for a photographer okay (laughs) not that i've ever done that kind of dirty stuff but um that is what's pulling me back this time. I'm going to photograph that before it's gone. And it will go, and it's going to be there for the next three years if we look at it, and then it's all going to melt, disappear, and be gone forever. So imagine not having photographs of that stuff ever. I've got a few photographs of it, not much. I think when polar explorers, if we can call them that, adventurers, they leave land and go to North Pole, they're going to the North Pole. They're not going to take pictures because that... Slows them down, and they're not that interested. Borgason's the only other guy that's got beautiful pictures of the Arctic on his crossing of the Arctic Ocean, specifically. Um, but it's that kind of ice that I'm going to find.
1: So it obviously is a creative endeavor. Is it just that? Um,
0: the creativity is a byproduct of taking pictures. I'm going there to document the stuff before it's gone, so people can see what it looks like. Whether it's a hang on the walls piece of art, or a catalogue of this is what multi-sea ice used to look like. Depends who's looking at it and how it's, how it's been shown to people. So, it's either going to be a document of this is a record of what the ice used to be like, or it's going to be a beautiful hanging document <laughs> called a piece of art, I would say.
1: But as you were telling me earlier as well, you know, you're not going solo, are you?
0: No, um, hopefully there'll be a team of us. I'm still hoping there's going to be the people who want to come with me um, on it. Hopefully three or four of us. Um, but we're going there to ground truth, what the satellites think, multi- where it is. Um, there's some very clever bloke called Sai in America. He's designing some trackers that we can attach to them. So we can see the speed, the moving and the height and the pitch and the roll and the temperature and the position. So obviously we can literally literally watch them melt away into nothing if we find them, if we find them and if we tag them.
1: And this is deliberately a stupid question, but why does it matter?
0: Matters because I was hoping you were gonna answer that. Ask that question, because it's a difficult question. I'm trying not to get emotional about it. Of course it fucking matters. That's not a uh, Doesn't hold any substance with most people because it's just a lump of ice. But if it was an elephant and if there was only one or two photographs of elephants, which there aren't, but if there was only one or two pictures of elephants and the last one was shot by some bloke with a rifle for fun making it extinct, we wouldn't have many pictures of them. That would be a crime, that would be a moral crime, I think. So yes, it is just lumps of ice. So one, it's an ice, it's a geographic feature that's gonna become extinct. The whole environment of the Arctic Ocean is going to be extinct by 2090. There's not going to be any ice on the Arctic Ocean by 2090. That's the latest predictions by 2030, there's a theory that it will be ice free in the summer, so there's going to be no ice in the summer there. If there's no photographs of it, that would, be a, that would be a shame. That's putting it nicely. I'm trying to be polite now. And if it's not there, when we go and look for it, is it important that we don't find it? What does, is that an important question? It's gone extinct. Is it important? It's become extinct. Well, we'll all feel it. we'll all feel that um, the reaction on us physically when the ice is gone. Weather patterns are already becoming unpredictable because the ice cap is no longer reflecting back 98% of the sun's radiation. The seas are getting warmer, it's changing the weather. Patterns: Some places are getting colder, some are getting drier, some are getting wetter, some are getting warmer. Did I say that? And that's going to make the first thing that's going to change is predictability of food crops. And then, when that becomes unpredictable, there's going to be food shortages, and then that's ultimately going to lead to civil war when we're all fighting for land and food. That is a massive doom and gloom picture. I know that's. What scientists are predicting.
1: Yeah, it is doom and gloom, but often, especially having lots of these conversations with people who are experts in their field or have been doing things for decades, there's always hope and there's always despair. And I think those two things move hand in hand with each other. And I think that it's important that we do talk about the realities of it, whether that's hopeful or whether it's not. It's hard to listen to, and it makes me feel selfish, and it makes me feel um, ignorant, and it can be quite a dark path to go down. I think if you spend your whole life feeling guilty about the fact that you are doing what you do, but I was actually it's interesting because I was going to end this conversation by asking you questions that I haven't asked since questions I haven't asked since the first episode which are what gives you hope and what, what um, causes you to despair, you know, what makes you panic. And I, by that, I don't mean, and I will ask you those questions, and I don't mean just in terms of Arctic sea ice, unless that is the answer. But what gives you hope and what scares you?
0: Hmm. What scares me? What gives me hope? Birdsong gives me hope. Hmm. Bird song doesn't give me hope, but what bird gives me, it lifts my spirits, without exception. I don't know why, but it does, because birds sing, whether they're having good days or bad days, they always sing. <laughs> What gives me hope is the fact that human beings are an incredibly resourceful species. And even though by accident, we've made a mess of this place called Earth, we do have the the capacity as a species collectively to undo our bad work. That gives me a lot of hope. There's loads of people out there working really hard, studying really hard, trying really hard to find ways to undo this carbon dioxide overload that's in our atmosphere right now.
1: To what extent do you think that that is shaping the decisions that you make, career-wise and travel-wise and expedition-wise?
0: I I don't you know I do my recycling bit. I have a recyclable coffee cup and I put my plastic and my cardboard and my paper in the right recyclable bins and do that, that's not even, that's not gonna help anyone, really. Not gonna help anything in the grand scheme, it's not. It's good we're doing it, it's a tiny, tiny, tiny scratch on the surface of a massive problem. I looked at my miles the other day and thought I'll just do carbon offsetting, so I've driven 6,000 miles in the last two years. So I went online, and paid someone, paid a company to suck out the equivalent of CO2 out of the atmosphere. Didn't cost much, got on what it was. And I do walk to work and I do cycle where I can and I do, I don't buy greens that are outside Europe. Don't ever do that. I have cut down eating meat. I do. I do what I can without you know, I haven't changed my lifestyle. I'm not going to live up a tree for the rest of my life, or I'm not going to drive a car or catch the train or get in a plane. I'll do what I can, but is enough for my conscience to think I'm doing is, I am reducing my impact by as much as I can without changing my lifestyle massively. Because I'm, you know, I'm not going to go and live in a caravan and put on wooly jumpers. I do have a thermostat here, and I do get cold, and I do turn the heating up i don't feel any shame in doing that, so human beings give me hope they do I mean there's exceptions to those rules. some people are don't give me any hope at all, but generally, as a species, I think we are pretty amazing things
1: and again, question from the first episode what, what last question what do you think eighty year old you would say to you
0: I was secretly hoping you wouldn't ask me that because I've I know that question and I've been thinking what would eight year old that's a very good question though (laughs) I don't remember his answer Uh, what would an eight year old me ask me
1: what would 80 year old you I mean you can interpret it how you want I'm kind of interested anyway it goes but the, the question is what would 80 year old you say to you maybe advice, maybe, I don't know.
0: My eight-year-old would ask me that, he would say to me, you should have gone self-employed sooner, you should have worked harder, you should have gone to bed earlier, you shouldn't have drank so much beer, even though you had a lot of fun doing that, you shouldn't have done that for so many years, you should have traveled more, you should have had counselling at a much earlier age. That way you probably wouldn't have fucked up quite a few of the relationships you had later in life. <clears throat> you should have told your dad you shouldn't have got divorced from your mother. You should have told your mum not to stop smoking. No, you should have told your mum to stop smoking. Um, you should have told your dad to stop drinking. And I should have gone to travel and visit my sister when she lived in Tanzania and Buenos Aires. That's
1: a very honest answer. And if you can bear it, I'm going to ask you sort of to continue it a little bit because it's a very good, honest answer. But basically, you've, just, you've told me the things that you think you should have done. What, how old are you now?
0: I'm 150 now. <laughs> Minus the 100 50 Yeah
1: So what What would 80 You're is? supposed to
0: say you don't look it Martin That's what, that's what you're supposed yeah, to say Yeah well I
1: am Yeah, <laughs> You've got a better hairline than me And I'm 30 Well what does 80 year old you think of 51 year old you? What's he going to say to 51 year old Martin?
0: You're very lucky because you're 50 and I'm 80 <laughs> And uh, That's the easy question to answer that one, because I was at my dad's 60th and I'd just turned 30 and I thought my life was over when I was 30. Oh, my God, I'm an old man now. Bollocks, I'm 30. What have I done? And I was having a bit of a whinge to one of my dad's friends in the pub and he said, Martin, you're 30. I'm 60 next week. How do you think that feels? So eight-year-old Martin's looking down at Martin who's 50, saying, look, you have got miles left in your tank. Just use them wisely.
1: Do you hope 80-year-old Martin still go into the Arctic?
0: There won't be Arctic... There won't be any sea ice when I'm 80. There will not be any sea ice when I'm 80 years old. But I'll have an epic set of pictures, hopefully, that I can show people, say, look, that's what it used to be like. Now, there is... What gives me hope is a couple of cold winters. If we have a couple of cold winters, sea ice grows very quickly when it's cold. We just need a couple of really cold winters to bring the ice back. Then we're okay. It's possible, it's unlikely, that gives me hope. But what I mean to you, current predictions are there's not going to be any sea ice.
1: I guess we'll see what happens.
0: No, let's not see what happens. Let's make sure it doesn't happen. How? People think planting trees is going to help us. We haven't got time to plant 20 million, billion, trillion trees. So we're in a state of emergency now. What will help is some technology that's emerging, which is, it is technology and it is not ideal, but we're going to have to use it in this little emergency phase we're in, before we can start planting we can plant trees now but we haven't got the luxury of time so there's technology called carbon sequestration which is sucking co2 out of the atmosphere i met a bloke in california who has a company called global thermostat he's designed this machine he's a physicist and he said if we have a million of these machines which isn't that difficult if you think about how many cars we make and ships and airplanes in the course of a few years if we have a million of these machines they can be anywhere on the planet 50 of the sorry a million of these machines will suck out of the atmosphere 50 billion tons of carbon a year and currently we're putting up 40 billion tons of carbon up into the atmosphere so in 36 years time we'll have in terms of CO2 concentrations, the same atmospheric conditions as we had a hundred years ago before the industrial revolution kicked off. Then we're okay. Then we can carry on as normal. So that is one theory of how we can rescue ourselves. It's interesting. It's worth trying. Fuck it, let's try it. If that doesn't help, we'll do something. Con- this is what I'm talking about. This is why human beings give me hope some little bloke scratching his head in the middle of a forest on the west coast of California is thinking right what can I do to unsolve, to undo this trouble so he's come up with that solution which is controversial but <laughs> what harm can it do? I'm sure it can do some harm but
1: Doesn't sound like a bad plan does it?
0: It's worth trying
1: well, I could sit here and do. You get, get a bottle of beer and do three hours of this. <laughs> I'll force myself to stop. For everyone's sake, and I'll just say thanks.
0: Thank you, Matt.
1: Thank you very much for listening. For more information on Martin Hartley, check out theadventurepodcast.co.uk where there are links in the show notes to Martin's website and a bit more information about him. This podcast is produced by Coldhouse in association with Sidetrack Magazine. It's hosted by Matt Pycroft and produced by Pip Saunders and Tom Carr-Griffin. And as ever, the uh, likes and shares and tweets and retweets and Insta-likes and hashtags and stories and all of that jazz um, are all incredibly useful for us and so are reviews on iTunes. So please, please do leave us a review um, and tell your friends. Uh, we've had some amazing feedback recently and we've actually been receiving quite a lot of emails so if you do fancy getting in touch and saying hello then you can email us at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk